sudden you think they're foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace, go pink to hunger. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Leonardo Flores of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. On the first half of today's program, I'll be joined by Dr. Jamima Pierre of the Black Alliance for Peace. We'll discuss the assassination of Haitian leader Jovenel Moise and what the implications will be for Haiti going forward. The second half of the program will be an excerpt from Code Pink Congress, a weekly action hour in which we discuss a hot button issue with an expert and then followed up with calls to our representatives. On this week, Code Pink Congress, we spoke with Cuban diplomat Daniel Menocal about the protests in Cuba and the U.S. blockade. But first, some news. Authorities in Bolivia and Argentina denounced that the prior Argentinian government, led by then-President Mauricio Macri, sent bullets, tear gas, smoke bombs, and other gas grenades to the Añez coup regime in Bolivia in 2019. These materials were sent on November 12, 2019, just two days after then-President Evo Morales was forced to resign as part of a coup. Within a week of receiving these items, the Añez dictatorship ordered troops to fire live ammunition at protesters in Sencata, Sacaba, and La Paz, leading to at least 36 people being murdered by the military. The right-wing government in Ecuador also sent military materials to Bolivia at this time, meaning that at least three right-wing countries were implicated in the coup in Bolivia, Ecuador, Argentina, and the U.S. Current Argentinian President Alberto Fernandez apologized to the Bolivian people and the government for his predecessor's actions. Macri is facing possible charges in Argentina for the shipment of military materials. In Colombia, the Institute for Advanced Studies and Development at Peace, INDEPAS, denounced the massacre in Cauca, southwest Colombia, the 52nd massacre so far in 2021. A group of people were gunned down by armed men, leading to three deaths, including a six-year-old child. According to Indepas, the shooting was related to a territorial conflict between paramilitaries, drug cartels, and guerrillas. So far this year, 90 social leaders have been murdered in Colombia. This does not include the 74 people killed in the context of a nationwide strike from April to June, where the government violently repressed protesters. Earlier this week, 17-year-old Duvan Barros was found dead after having gone missing over a month ago when he went to a protest in Bogota. According to his mother, Duvan was detained by an ESMAD agent, ESMAD being Colombia's riot police that has come under heavy criticism for its human rights abuses during the strike. The ESMAD forcibly put Duvan into a truck and disappeared him. Despite his mother's pleas, Colombian authorities didn't even begin investigating his disappearance until more than a week after it happened. Bogotá's police chief claims Duvan's death had nothing to do with the protests and was a result of an accident in which he drowned. Another protester, Alquimedes Santana, was also found dead in a Morgan Cauca after he went missing on May 27th. As of a month ago, 540 people had disappeared during the national strike. 
Presidents throughout Latin America are denouncing the U.S. blockade on Cuba in the wake of the protests that have gotten so much international attention. Argentinian President Alberto Fernandez said the following, The people are who must decide the way they want to live if we are to support peace. There is nothing more inhumane during a pandemic than a blockade. Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro to President Díaz-Canel and the people and revolutionary government of Cuba, you have Venezuela's full support. We are brothers and sisters in good times and in bad. If the U.S. really wanted to help Cuba, it should immediately lift the sanctions and blockade against its people. Mexican President López Obrador. If they really wanted to help Cuba, the first thing they should do is suspend the blockade, as the most of the world has been asking. This would be a truly humanitarian gesture. No country in the world should be fenced in, blocked. It is the most contrary thing to human rights. Nobody can, nobody has the right to make these decisions that affect peoples. Bolivian President Luis Arce Cuba's problems should be resolved by Cubans without any interference, particularly from those who have maintained a criminal blockade for 60 years. End the blockade. We will be speaking about Cuba later on in the program, but if you're in the D.C. area on July 25th, Join us at Lafayette Park at 2 o'clock, where, where we'll be having a rally to end the blockade, featuring Carlos Lasso of Puentes de Amor, or Bridges of Love. Carlos Lasso and six other people are walking from Miami to D.C., a 1,300-mile trek, in order to raise awareness of the blockade against Cuba. I'd like to welcome Dr. Jamima Pierre, the Haiti America's Coordinator at the Black Alliance for Peace and an Associate Professor of African American Studies and Anthropology at UCLA. We're going to be talking about Haiti and Jamima knows her stuff. So hopefully listeners will be inspired to join me at a Haiti rally organized by the Black Alliance for Peace. Code Pink and other organizations will be there, there as well. That's from noon to 2 p.m. today in front of the State Department at 21st Street and Virginia Avenue Northwest. Welcome to the program, Jamima. Thank you for having me, Leonardo. I'm happy to be here. So of course, so let's start if you could just give us a brief kind of update on the latest news coming out of Haiti. Uh, yeah, or we should, should we say the latest is coming out of the U.S. <laughs> exactly. um, you know, what's happening, it's, it's crazy. You know, at first it was all this conversation about Colombian mercenaries. Um, and now the, 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 you know, the story keeps changing. And the latest is uh, 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 this guy named Christian Emmanuel Sano um, is behind, is supposedly the main guy, a, a guy in, in Florida, that's been around. Uh, he's a conservative. He's, he's had uh, relations with the Republican National Commission. So now they're saying he was the mastermind behind um, the, the assassination. And and all of this, I have to say, all of this news coming out is coming out through the U.S. press, but also through Leon Charles, which is who was um, the Haitian chief of police, who was who was a very controversial. We could talk about him in a little bit. Very controversial Haitian of, um, chief of police, and also the self-declared president, interim prime minister, Claude Joseph. And so we have to take everything that's coming out of Haiti right now with a grain of salt. The story keeps changing, but um, it just seems, and most people in Haiti actually don't believe the official storylines. Most people in Haiti will tell you that they think this was an internal um, situation, that it was a coup d'etat within the party. Um, and so, so we have to be careful we, uh, about what's coming out. The other thing I wanted to say about the news that's coming out is immediately after this interim Prime Minister Claude Joseph declared himself president, even though his term had ended the day of the assassination, he was supposed to hand over to a new um, a, a appointed prime minister. Immediately after he declared himself president, the UN Special Rep uh, Representative in Haiti, Helen Lalim, 
affirmed his, his claim to the presidency and basically stated that he would remain president until elections. So, so that itself tells you um, where the so-called international community is and who they're supporting. Yeah, I mean, that, to me, that's really interesting, right? Because you have this guy, Claude Joseph, who has seemingly a lot to gain from Jovenel Moïse's assassination. And then you have the police chief who also seems to either, maybe not so much to gain, but a lot to lose because he's presumably responsible for the protection of the president and everything that's going on. And, and they're now the ones attempting to establish the narrative in the US, which it seems like it, it's just designed to confuse people and to draw attention from the fact that, I mean, for me, one of the biggest stories coming out right now is that Klaus Joseph has called for US troops to be sent to Haiti. I mean, this is a, the, yeah, this is a guy who's funded by, was funded by the NED 20 years ago and has very strong ties to the U.S. So, yes. so what would it, well, go on. So what would it mean for, for U.S. troops to, to enter Haiti? Is that something that the Haitian people want? Oh, no, it would cause chaos. Uh, you know, that's the one thing that people don't. Let me just say something about intervention. You know, people think intervention is the military bringing all its troops you know, large numbers of troops like they did after um, the U.S. back, Canada back, um, coup d'etat against Aristide in 2004. But intervention is ongoing meddling of the U.S., for example, for example, in supporting Claude Joseph and supporting Leon Charles, who has a terrible human rights record because he was known for this brutal massacre of Aristide supporters between 2004, 2006, when he was police chief of this interim um, um, presidents after the coup d'etat. So, you know, so so part of that is, you know, but intervention, you know, military inter intervention with Haiti would mean the addition of troops, which would be extended inter intervention, which Haitians already know that they're under occupation by the UN, by the OAS, by the core group, and, and by the US State Department. They know this because those are the people who control what's going on and they're controlling the narrative. But US troops would really be a, a slap in the face for everyone. And I think part of that is the, the Biden administration is saying that it's not going to send troops, but it opens up the space, I think, as you've said before, Leonardo, for, for actually actively sending troops. And we should be worried because one of the key things that Claude Joseph did when he declared himself president was also declare a state of siege, which is equivalent to martial law in Haiti. And he also immediately outlawed protests. And so think about what that means then. If you have a, a, a police chief that's known for his human rights abuses, a Claude Joseph, who is, as you know, is NED trained and, and, and trained in the US, but also a state of siege, opening up the space that if they ask for US uh, uh, um, intervention in the, in the form of military, the people will definitely protest. And then they will use that both as a, as a way to repress the people, but also to ask for more intervention. So a lot of people are seeing this as a setup for actual military presence, more military presence in, the, in Haiti to force these elections that the U.S. want to happen in the fall. And continuing on the issue of Claude Joseph, as you noted, he, he received basically immediate recognition by the U.S. and U.N. Uh, not long after Moise was assassinated. But there are also two, at least two competing claims for the presidency right now. We have Joseph Lambert, who was designated by the Senate, and also Ariel Henry, who was appointed by Moïse just days before his health. It should be noted that both Henri and Claude Joseph were appointed by Moïse, but after Moïse, his term had expired in office. So it, do any of these men have a claim to legitimacy? And who's in charge of Haiti right now? Right, so that's a good question. None of these people have claims to legitimacy in Haiti. Not Moïse, not Joseph, not Henri. 
Um, you know, in Lambert, the part of the thing is there were only 10, because Moise has been ruling by decree, right, for about 18 months, the only, the, there are only 10 members of the Senate left. And all of, most of them, I think all but, all but one were part of the same Moise party, the PHTK, the Ted Calais party. So they're all right-wing conservative uh, members of, of, of the Senate, of Haiti Senate anyways, right? And Ariel Henry is very known for being part of the quote unquote council of sages that the US set up supposedly to have Haitian voices after the invasion and occupation from 2004. So he's also known as a, a right wing US and UN puppet. So none of these people um, uh, have legitimacy and all of them have right wing politics. And that's the scary part. Now the Lambert, you know, the US, the elected Senate tried to, you know, name him, um, you know, president uh, they say based on the constitution, which actually makes more sense because they're elected compared to Claude Joseph. But then they indef indefinitely um, stopped the actual voting of Lambert, right? So someone must have reached out to them to tell them to stop because they haven't said it, you haven't heard anything from them since they initially said that they, had, they wanted to have their own person um, in place in position of power. So who's running Haiti, we have to say it's the person that stood up and immediately made the decision that the president of Haiti would be Claude Joseph until elections. That's Helen Laline, and that's the UN integrated mission in Haiti. And so that tells you it's the core group really making the decision. And now with the US media in a frenzy, because part of that the US media is, you know, is based on this idea of the racist representation, ongoing racist representation of Haitians as being these black people who always in chaos, who cannot run themselves, lead, right? And so the US media has always reported on Haiti like this, and they don't have long-term, they don't care about imperial machinations in Haiti. So then they're the ones creating the narrative right now, right? The intrigue around assassination plots, Haitian Americans and so on and so forth, without questioning why it is that the 21 people who were set up to, to guard um, um, uh, uh, Moise on the night he was murdered, none of them are being held to account. No questions are being asked about the Haitian Haitian guards, including Leon Joseph. None of them got hurt. Nobody got shot. There was no shootout. It was just the only two people shot were Moise and his wife. So those are the questions that are not being asked. And, and, and so with the US narrative on 24-hour media repeating the same things or repeating whatever the State Department says and Moise says, we are completely losing the, 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 the crooks of the story. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and not to dwell too much on, on the assassination, because I think I, I totally agree with you. I think there's a kind of a morbid fascination going on in the US media that ignores the actual issues that Haitian people are facing. But, you know, I people have questions as to the extent of US involvement. And so given that you have 26 Colombian mercenaries who are ex-soldiers in the Colombian military, some of them have very close ties to the Duke administration, and they received US training. The Colombian armed forces all receive US financial support. And then on top of that, you have Claude Joseph, who's received NED funds, and the director of the CIA was in Colombia days before the murder. And on top, and we just have more news that supposedly the DEA informants were part of this plot. So it, it seems that the, like at the very least, the, U, the US knew what was going on. It, is that right? And then on the second kind of a follow-up question is, why would the US want Moise out? Right, so as I have been saying for the past couple of weeks, nothing happens in Haiti without the knowledge of the core group and these people who run Haiti, which are you know the core group, the US State Department, 
Helen Lalim and the UN and the OAS, right? And so, so there's that. So obviously, you know, if, if they did not know an assassination was going to happen, they were aware that something was going to happen. So, so there's that. Um, you know, the mercenary question is interesting. A, a lot of my sources in Haiti are telling us um, that, you know, Moise had always used mercenaries, right? Uh, you know, the, you know, his his as security, right? Or use mercenaries during protests, and that's one of the things that people kept saying that there were all these mercenaries in Haiti already, these foreign mercenaries, and so people are saying that yes, so that means they're all involved. The mercenaries were already there. The word on the street is that it's the mercenaries that actually found Moise's wife and sent her to the hospital and took her to the hospital and her daughter. And so a lot of people are thinking, well, then they're basically being used as a setup. Like, how do you know exactly it was 26 of them that were there to, 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 to conduct an assassination? Where is the Haitian police force guarding, guarding, guarding Moise? So yes, yeah, so I do think the US knows what's happening, but also we have to really think about, because what happens in Haiti is really what people use, you know, what the US uses. I feel like Haiti is like a testing ground for the way that the US engages in, in, in enact imperialism in the rest of the world and especially in the Americas. And so you have all, you have the NYPD training Haitian police from 2010 and 11, right? You have NED funding the guy who, you know, um, Claude Joseph, who was funded as an NDD as so-called student leader against Aristide from 2000 to 2004. You have Leon Charles, who was the OAS representative of Haiti, but also the chief of police under the UN and the US while Haiti was under military occupation after coup d'etat. So yeah, and then you, of course you have the Colombian mercenaries and Duque, and, and you have all these people trained by the US. There, there's a connection to the US training, money, arms in all of this. And so we all have to step back then, and you're right, you know, the assassination is a terrible thing, but step back and think, well, what is going on there in Haiti? What is happening? And how is it that then that the U.S. is very much, you know, how is the U.S. not involved? Because right now, all things point to the fact that the U.S. is very much involved in all of this. And then the U.N. then supports, upholds whatever the U.S. does, um, or does, does in Haiti and the OAS as well. And, and you know, Haiti's, uh, the context of Haiti over the past few months is that there's been massive, massive protests, both against the government, Moïse staying in power, but also against corruption and other issues. And in response to this protest, we've seen really brutal repression of people's movements and protesters from the Haitian police and gangs. And actually about a week before Moïse's death, there was a journalist and an activist were killed in a night when 13 other people were murdered. I mean, we're talking about a country that where the police and gangs are massacring people. And so I know that before long, we're going to get some kind of well-meaning liberals talking about the responsibility to protect. Actually, it, just earlier this week in the Washington Post, they, they published a, an opinion piece from a guy named Max Poot, who said that, they that you know, there should be UN troops in Haiti, but that the US should stay out of it. But still, the idea that he was pitching was that Haiti needs to be saved from itself somehow, and that US troops are need to go to, ha to Haiti to save the Haitians from themselves. Can you respond to this sort of line of argument? Yeah, I mean the responsibility to protect is is really the new the new way of having the imperialist um, movements in Haiti without it being called racist and and demeaning and and the way to remove sovereignty. Now let's remember the UN was brought into Haiti under Chapter Seven, which was about which is about basically they're allowed to use force against the Haitian people. And the Chapter Seven deployment always also means that there's like 
civil war in a country and it, you know, all, you know, it needs to be, you know, things need to be put down. And so, but they also know that the UN caused many massacres in Haiti in its 17 year um, um, occupation of Haiti. You know, th this is a, a force that was extremely um, big. It was a large force of thousands of soldiers, tens of thousands, and it had both a military and, and a civilian force. They're known for bringing cholera into Haiti that killed, you know, that killed, all, you know, that's a massacre to me, up to 30,000 people and sickened almost a million. They're known for all their rapes of young people, fathering a lot of children. And so this is the UN legacy in Haiti. If you go to Haiti, you mentioned UN truths, they're gonna say cholera, sexual exploitation, and 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 death, right? And so so there's that. Now, the protests against Moise have been ongoing, right, since before he became president because he was so-called elected without the mandate of the people. Then there was a, you know, then there was a Petro-Carib uh, scandal where it was revealed that the PhDK stole $2 billion of this money that, you know, the Venezuelan government had really opened up for Haiti to use for, uh, for, for development. And then, you know, when Leon Charles came in within his first week of taking power in the fall, the first thing it did was the repression of, of protests against Moise in November. And so, you know, so the Haitian, the FBI have to say about the Haitian police, you know, you know, the, after the Duvalier regime um, ended um, and Duvalier left, one of the things that Aristide, the first elected, the first publicly elected president in Haitian history, did was dismantle the U.S. military, um, the Haitian military, because that military has been linked to, to the to the military that the U.S. actually set up back in the 1915 to 1934 <laughs> occupation, which ended up really terrorizing the people through the Duvalier years, and the, and the military was really the bane of our existence. And so um, Aristide disbanded the minister military. As soon as he was deposed, you know, WikiLeaks files show that the goal was to reintegrate these rogue military soldiers into the Haitian National Police. So the U.S. has really, and the U.N. has really funded the building of the Haitian National Police, but which includes all these old elements. So all the money and the funding and the training is about the, the this Haitian police, which has been brutal to the Haitian people, but also with Martelly, the reestablishment of the U.S. of the Haitian military, which has been also terrible to, to, to Haitian people. And so what I want to say to these people who are calling for intervention, it is intervention that has gotten us in this place to begin with. It is under U.N. occupation and U.S. occupation that we actually had this past 10 years of Martelly and Moise and PHTK rule, which has been devastating for people, which has allowed the increase of gang violence. And I have to say, gangs have always been used by the Haitian elite, the light-skinned elite in Haiti, to, to go against other gangs, to help, you know, go against uh, protests against them. Um, so we have to also think about the class and color politics in Haiti, how the elite plays plays into the, the political game. So under Moise and under Martelly, we've seen really a large brutality of, of people. And that's and, and the reason for that is actually occupation. It's the UN occupation that caused so much death and destruction and misery. And now for us to for Haitian people to be under this the this 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 presidency that's been nothing. These last two presidencies have been that have meant nothing but harm for them. Yeah, I mean it sounds like what you're describing is from 2004 onwards since that coup, the Haitian state was almost designed to fail, designed to need more intervention in order to keep keep it under con the control of the US OES core group and UN. And that kind of leads to my second my, my the next question. So there's an infamous clip that we played before of Biden in 1994 saying, if Haiti just quietly sunk into the Caribbean or rose up 300 feet, 
it wouldn't matter a whole lot in terms of our interests. So in addition to being, you know, a disgustingly callous and racist thing to say, it's also very clearly false, right? Because the U.S. invests so much money and energy into controlling Haiti. Why is Haiti so important to the U.S.? Yeah, well, I have to say, well, Biden has always been a racist. And so I'm sure he probably actually believes what he's saying until then he becomes president and realizes that he actually needs to, you know, keep Haiti <laughs> in play for U.S. imperial uh, uh, governance. But yes, I mean, there, you know, there's, People do wonder why this little country, why is it that it's getting so much U.S. money and so on? So we, I guess we should ask the U.S. government why it is that it's spending billions and billions of dollars in controlling this, this government. And why is it that Haiti, for example, has the, the fourth largest U.S. embassy in the world? Why would that tiny little country need that? And I think, first of all, um, you know, it, it, it's the matter of the Haitian Revolution. And I think, you know, people don't want to acknowledge this, but I think white powers have never been... Um, you know, have never been, have never forgotten Haiti for shattering, even for a short time, um, the idea of white supremacy, right, in, in Haiti. And Haiti being this black nation that destroyed Napoleon, that, you know, that got rid of slavery, even while the U.S. was still a slave state. So there's that. But I also think um, one key mission, and I've said this before in other places, is, you know, to destroy the remnants of the popular movement that had brought Aristide to power. In, in 1990. And I think, you know, I think these days it's for the CIA, a coup d'etat is too passe. And so they found, and Haiti is a model for other people to think about, especially as Cuba is making the news and as Venezuela has been making the news, is a model of how the US and the CIA and the FBI will work for regime change without actually doing a coup d'etat, right? And so, so part of that is to destroy the remnants of the popular movement for the first time that the Haiti had in 1990 to promote the interests of business-friendly Haitian transnational bourgeoisie, right? Um, and also to further the neo-colonial, neo neo-colonial as well agenda. Because if you look at the WikiLeaks uh, cables um, uh, 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 obtained um, by Assange and, and people, you see that the, the UN, you know, Janet Sanderson said of the UN uh, mission in Haiti, that it was easy for them to use the UN because then it, it really helps the US realize its, 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 uh, its core policy interests, which is um, suppressing resurgent populist anti-market political, um, anti-market economy political forces in the region, right? So, so we have that. And so the Moise government has one way to, 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 to destroy the remnants of popular movement, and basically the re, um, you know, to transform Haitians back into slave labor, you know, to, to, to complete the imperialist project that the U.S. started in 1915, which is, you know, their economic goals are to, to create cheap labor for multinationals through the textile sector, um, agriculture, to remove most Haitians who, who were up until very recently still on their land, but to also turn that into, you know, um, monocrop development for, for U.S. corporations, opening up mining since there's been a lot of oil and gold found in northern northern Haiti. And as an aside, as I said this before, the first mining license was given to Hillary Clinton's younger brother, who doesn't mine but has a mining license in Haiti, um, and then to tourism. So they're finding a way, you know, to accomplish this, you know, takeover of land, which is owned by peasants in a lot of Haiti, unlike most places um, in the developing world. And I think another key mission is to use Haiti in the to control the Caribbean basin. 
And what people doesn't, don't realize is Mola St. Nicholas is an island to the north of Haiti that the U.S. has been trying to get control of since the 1800s, late 1800s. Um, and so, and this is why they ended up actually in Guantanamo because they couldn't have access to this island. But as late as last um, year, people were talking about Moise was actually open to allowing the U.S. to use that as a military as a military base so that they can get out of Guantanamo, out of, out of Cuba and, and create this space. And so we have to think about, you know, um, the U.S. using this strategic geopolitical location as a way to have access to the Panama Canal. It is, you know, in preparation for this ensuing, we, we must see, confrontation with, with China, while at the same time trying to stop the growing leftist movements in Latin America, right? So thus, under Moise, for the first time, you had, you know, he voted against the Guantanamo, Venezuelan government and supported, you know, the unelected usurper called Juan Guaido, right? And so, so part of that is, you know, Haiti becomes geographically perfectly positioned for U.S. imperial power. And I think, you know, Moise was serving that purpose, but I also think um, his uh, his presidency was had become too unpopular and too unstable, especially with the with the assassinations and so on and so forth. And they needed a replacement that continued the work, but without causing so much so much uh, dissension. What I think is going to happen, though, because this is such a sloppy coup d'etat and assassination, because there's because people are not buying the current narrative, they're going to have to figure something out. And I think this only means more more um, repression of Haitian people as they continue to fight against uh, fight against imperial this, these imperial machinations. Dr. Jamima Pierre, thank you so much. And to our listeners, you can follow the work of Black Alliance for Peace at blackallianceforpeace.com and on Twitter at blacksforpeace, that's the number four. Also, please go to codepink.org slash no troops to Haiti to demand that President Biden not send troops to Haiti because we don't want another military intervention there. You are listening to Code Pink Radio coming to you from Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C. and WBAI in New York City. We'll be back after this break with Cuban diplomat Daniel Menocal being interviewed by Code Pink's Michelle Elner and Marcy Winograd.
Radio Gladys Palmera. Barcelona. That was Nengom by Morena Son, an all-women band from Cuba that recently joined Code Pink for an online concert to celebrate the June 23rd vote at the United Nations, where the world once again came together to denounce the cruel U.S. blockade of Cuba. Up next, we have Code Pink's Marcy Winograd and Michelle Elner interviewing Cuban diplomat Daniel Menocal. All right, we are now going to go to our first guest. Daniel Menocal is the third secretary at the Cuban Embassy to the United States in Washington, D.C. Before that, Daniel Menocal worked at the Cuban Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the U.S. General Division that was from 2015 to 2018. He has a degree in international relations from Cuba's High Institute of Foreign Affairs. Welcome, Daniel Menocal. Hello, how are you, Marcy? Great, and uh, we're just so pleased to have you, and uh, it's obviously very timely and important that we hear uh, what's going on from you. Okay, so first of all, I would like to start by thanking you for the invitation, and also by thanking the solidarity that Code Pink has offered to Cuba in recent times. Once said that, I would like to talk about the events that took place in Cuba last Sunday, which were a direct result of the situation the country is living which combines the economic crisis, the scarcity, the food and energy shortages, and the effects of the COVID pandemic. As, sorry, all these problems generate upset in the Cuban population, as them would do it in any other country living the same. But no other nation has had to deal with 60 years old blockade imposed by the most powerful country in the world. The effects of the blockade has been catastrophic for the Cuban people, as it deepens the economic crisis, increases the scarcity of elemental products like food or medicines, and makes harder the fight against COVID-19. At the end of Trump's administration, more than 240 measures were taken to reinforce the, that same blockade in the midst of the worldwide pandemic, and those measures were designed to generate hunger, power shortages, and discontent in the Cuban population. The direct result of this criminal U.S. policy against Cuba were the protests that happened last Sunday. Protests that were manipulated from the United States when the traditional anti-Cuban right wing were, and still is, running a media campaign to create a sensation of disturbance and instability inside the country using fake news and thousands of bots accounts on social networks. The protests started in the San Antonio de los Baños municipality as a peaceful demonstration of people upset with the country's difficult situation and where the Cuban president, Miguel Díaz-Canel, went there, walked down the streets, met with the protesters, and talked about the issues they were raising, something that is extremely hard to see in any other country. But this situation was the perfect starting point to the second side of the right-wing campaign against Cuba, and it was the mobilization of their paid agents inside the country who took the legitimate discontent of the population to first take some people out to the streets to demonstrate, second, change the protest argument from scarcity and crisis to regime change, third, try to turn those protests into violent manifestations, and finally ask for a, quote, humanitarian intervention. And here I would like to specify something. You have to be very mean or very naive to ask for an intervention against your own country. A country whose government you could agree or not, 
but where you you were born and where part of your family still lives lives in mostly when it's well known what have happened in the countries that have been humanitarily intervened in the past getting back to what happened in cuba the outcome of that plan was the situation most of you have followed during this day but the agitators didn't count with the fast reaction of the cuban authorities the revolutionary people who responded the call of the president took their streets to defend their country to defend their system to defend their revolution right now the situation is calm but there are still a few people trying to replicate what happened on sunday to keep the media and social network campaign running only that this time there are just a few opportunistic and violent people trying to earn some of the 20 million dollars the united states government approved for the regime change programs in cuba once said that, I would like to talk about COVID-19 situation in Cuba, which is experiencing a peak on the cases related with the outbreak of the Delta variants, variants of the virus in the country. Just today, Cuba has almost 37,000 confirmed cases and 1,600 people have died from COVID since the beginning of the pandemic. These numbers are very sad because our country has have managed to keep much lower figures since the beginning of the pandemic, but they are still way better than the numbers you can see in other countries in Latin America, Africa, or even in the United States itself. But this situation is not being left aside by the Cuban authorities. Our country continue to develop our five vaccine candidates, 100% Cuban, one of which was authorized as an effective vaccine with more than 90% of efficiency against the virus. The massive vaccination process is ongoing in Cuba. And on July 11th, only two days ago, Cuba had vaccinated almost two out of the 11 million people who live in the country. And a total of 7.5 million doses of our vaccines has been administered to the population. As you may see, the Cuban government, regardless of all, all difficulties imposed by the blockade, keeps fighting the pandemic and expect to have the whole population vaccinated by the end of this year. Finally, I would like to make a call for solidarity. These are difficult times, and difficult times demand people to help each other. This global pandemic will only be defeated if everyone works together beyond particular interests. Blockades and coercive measures are not the answers. Solidarity and cooperation are. Thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. And at this point, I'm going to ask people to post questions in the chat. We usually wait for all of our speakers to present and then do a Q&A. But uh, because we have almost two shows in one, and this is our time to look at Cuba and talk about expressing solidarity, we're going to open it up to questions at this point. Um, Daniel, for those who say, well, Cuba could go somewhere else. You know, we're imposing a blockade. Yes, it's 60 years now. Yes. But why can't Cuba get syringes from other countries? So perhaps you can explain that. Yes, I mean, most of it is part of the, of the blockade, because when you mention blockade, people usually don't know the depth of, of, of what we are talking about. For instance, uh, the United States at the beginning of the pandemic blocked uh, a shipment from, came in from China with precisely uh, pulmonary respirators. I mean, the equipment people need to get alive during we're dealing in, in the, in the, whether they are in the critical condition because of COVID-19. This is part of the blockade. Cuba cannot buy uh, most of the products 
who have more than 10% of the United States components in sale to anyone, to any country. So to buy uh, medic uh, complex medicines or medical equipment, in, even in third countries, is very difficult because some of them, or most of them, have more than 10% of U.S. components. So Cuba is not allowed to buy that. Also, is the monetary issue. When you have an international commerce, when you are going to do a, trans a transaction in the United States dollar, that transaction passes through the United States monetary system, financial system. And they feel free to blockade all Cuba's transaction only because they are related to Cuba. There's, there's no issue, there's no point in for what is the transaction, if the product or the service, it just has to do with Cuba, it's blockable by the United States, and they enforce that seriously, but also penalize banks and financial institutions that have deals with Cuba. And the result of that has been the, the fines they have imposed against a lot of banks in Switzerland, France, Canada, uh, uh, other countries, not, uh, in, not in the, the United States, because we don't have uh, normal banking relations just because of the blockade. And it's something that we would like to uh, to have, uh, but it hasn't been uh, possible. So this is just a general picture about every th every things that uh, uh, some of the things that compose that blockage, which is much bigger and and general. Thank you, Daniel. I, I I don't think most people realize the steep fines and and the punishment for uh, any kind of uh, executive. Uh, violating U.S. sanctions and go to prison for 20 years. Uh, it can come from a $10,000 fine to someone who travels to Cuba to make tourism, which is forbidden for the United States citizens, to $3,000 million to a bank who had uh, relations with Cuba. Thank you. Michelle? Yeah, well, we, we saw this at Code Pink. We opened this uh, GoFundMe campaign to raise money to buy the syringes, and it was immediately blocked just by containing the words Cuba, although we had all the licensing and all the requirements from the, min, uh, from the Department of Treasury. And it's amazing, like all the time that it takes and money for paying, paying for lawyers. I mean, it's, it's incredible. People don't realize this, but it's the, what Cubans are suffering every day. So we have a question here from Joe. Uh, how have the United States policy against Cuba changed or not changed since Biden became president? Uh, so far, uh, uh, Biden, uh, the Biden administration announced they are uh, they have the policy against Cuba under review. They are reviewing the policy. They even have mentioned some areas they are reviewing particularly, like remittances or, or travel or the reopening of the uh, American consulate in Havana. But nothing uh, uh, of that process have come to light so far. So. They still keep saying that the policy is under review, but they haven't said when it's going to be a result of that review. So in, in the practical issues, Cuba is still under the Trump's presidency measures. I mean, the whole, all the, 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 the 240 measures Trump take are still in force. And that hasn't changed and won't change until the Biden administration announces anything else. So absolutely. And again, I, I remind everyone, please stay till the end. We're going to be sending messages to our Congress members and to the White House to lift this blockade. Uh, to be cynical or to be realistic, uh, a lot of it apparently is coming down to Florida 
and not just the presidential race in 2024, but the Senate race. The Democrats don't want to lose control of the Senate. Uh, they're hoping that they can defeat Marco Rubio, one of the senators from Florida, with Val Demings. Uh, meanwhile, you know, people are suffering. It's, it's horrible. Uh, Daniel, some may be surprised that there is a Cuban embassy in D.C. Uh, perhaps you can tell us what the status of this embassy is, whether it also operated under Trump, or what's your day-to-day job like? Actually, yes, we have a, a running embassy in D.C. Uh, during uh, go, uh, the government of Donald Trump, uh, we have seen our staff reduced by the 60%. So or the, when they closed their consulate office in Havana, I mean, they reduced their staff there, alleging some attacks or a kind of story they use for that, and they force us to do the same. So in, in a way of reciprocity, if they remove 60% of their personnel, we have to remove 60% of ours. So with 40% of the people who, who uh, is supposed to be working here, we have to do the 100% of the job. So you can imagine it's uh, difficult, but it's not impossible. And We are here, we are working to build bridges to, to, to bring our, our countries closer and trying to, to, to engage. I mean, to demonstrate we can have better relations than what we have now. Thank you. Michelle? Sorry, yeah, I have, a, I have a question. So yeah, we heard this uh, thousands of people protesting the con economic conditions and all that. Were there counter protests in support of the government? Uh, we see, we know that on the 26th uh, of July, uh, it's a very important uh, date for the revolution. How many people typically turn out uh, for rallies in support of the revolution? I mean, uh, in, in the whole country, uh, uh, and on select dates like May 1st, uh, 26th of July, we, before the, the COVID pandemic, of course, we had millions of people on the, on the street. What happens on Sunday, there were thousands of people uh, uh, who demonstrate in the street, but we also had thousands of revolutionary people who were in the streets also to defend their revolutions. And all, the, all what revolution means, because you can see as a government or in abstract, but revolutions mean free healthcare, uh, means free education, may, uh, 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 it means opportunities for everyone. So that happened uh, on Sunday. Uh, it was clearly that the, the majority of the people who live in Cuba supports, supports this government, this system, and all that has to do with it. And it's even when, when we recognize the right to everyone to express themselves, uh, it's very important to do it uh, peacefully because violence is what shut down the communication. So that's a very important thing to have into account. But what we was shown, even when the, when the media, particularly here in the United States, and the social network campaigns tried to hide, even tried to use the revolutionary demonstrations and masquerade them as counter-revolutionary demonstrations, uh, uh, the people took the streets and were able to calm down the situation. So today I can say it's mostly calm. That's good to hear. Daniel, somebody asked in the chat, uh, what do you think about the possibility of China's SWIFT system as an alternative to U.S. sanctions? Uh, I guess 
moving to a different monetary system or exchange system? Sure. Uh, actually, it's, it's something I don't I don't know very well. I have to study about uh, to study about it to to make comment. But the re the reality is that uh, for Cuba, which is in the Caribbean, it's very difficult or more difficult to get products in China or in Asia because the the uh, it is more expensive. It takes more time to come. It's it's not that easy. And uh, Cuba, as a sovereign country, has the uh, the right, the sovereign right to trade with any country we we want. So why we cannot buy products in, let's say, Canada or Jamaica or Brazil or Chile because they are in U.S. dollars? So why why one country has the possibility to block the transactions made in, in the currency, which is used to buy the things in the international market? So. It's it's not something uh, of uh, which I, I mean it's, it's common sense. If uh, most of the trade, the trade, international trade, is it is in U.S. dollar, it's important to us to be a, to have the ability to use it. So it's, it's something uh, elemental. Thank you. We'll take one more question, Michelle. You have a question. Otherwise, I'll ask a question. There is a question on the chat. Is Mexico still trading with Cuba? Sure, I, I cannot specify what uh, uh, what goods or services are we trading, but yes, Mexico is one of the most important Cuban commercial partners, and it has been for a long time because it's it's very close to Cuba, so it's it's uh, it's common sense to, to to be that way. Well, actually, I have one more question. Don't uh, worry, don't worry. Leo posted in the chat. Can you talk a bit more about the Cuban vaccines? Will Cuba share that intellectual property with the global South so that they can produce vaccines as well? So about the, the vaccines, I know Cuba has five vaccine candidates. One of them, which is the Abdallah vaccine, was already uh, authorized to be used as a vaccine. It has a 92% efficiency against the COVID, so, which are very good news because it's in the top five of, of, of worldwide vaccines. Cuba has two 100% Cuban. One is Abdallah, which is already authorized, and the other one is Soberana, that is, is in the final stages before the authorization. But uh, in the case of the Cuban vaccine, we have always said we are uh, able to share our product. I mean, we are, we are not going to, to, say, to, to do the same thing that other countries who, who uh, uses all that for themselves and not sharing, so we are able to share that. In the case of the uh, intellectual property, I, I, I understand there is something going on in that way in the in the world commerce organization. So it's it's a thing I, I'm not very sure about, but you can count that we have the disposition to share our vaccines with the world. It's Thank you so that. much. Thank you so much, Daniel Manacal. Diplomat, Cuban diplomat stationed at the embassy in D.C., the Cuban embassy. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. If you're in D.C., please join us for a rally in, in solidarity with Haiti at 12 noon in front of the State Department at 21st Street and Virginia Avenue. That's today, Thursday, July 15th. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes, they're in 
business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. Code pink for freedom. Code pink for peace. Oh, pig.